You can be seated. <clears throat> so every summer since 2017, I've had the wonderful honor and privilege of leading a trip for college students to Israel. And each year, the, it's a different group of students, so, so the group is different. Uh, and therefore, different parts of the trip, different places that we go, or different concepts that they encounter capture their attention. Last year, they were asking a lot of questions about the sacraments, and especially about infant baptism. This year, they were asking a lot of questions about the temple. It, it, was, it was the concept of the temple that grabbed their attention. Of course, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And when that happened, Judaism had to reinvent itself. The religion of Judaism had to reinvent itself because the very place where they would go for, uh, to bring their offerings, to find forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of another, that place was, was now gone. And so they had to rethink their whole religion. And on that place now in Jerusalem, on Temple Mount, instead of the temple being there, there's a mosque. All right, the two mosques, actually. The Dome of the Rock there at the center of it. And so students would ask, when, when, the, when will the temple be rebuilt? When will the temple be rebuilt? Well, Psalm 40 is a powerful prayer of David that teaches us about the dangers and challenges of living in a fallen world, for example. It teaches us uh, the devastating effects of sin. It teaches us the reliability of God's word. It teaches us about the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. And this alone would be enough to make this psalm worthy of our attention and our study. But most importantly, at the heart of this psalm, at the heart of Psalm 40, we find Christ himself. And we find the very reason why there is no temple in Jerusalem today and why that's very good news for you and for me. So let's turn now to Psalm 40. It's a long psalm, and I'll be reading all of it, but it's a beautiful psalm, a profound psalm, and I think a psalm that will encourage us today. So again, listen to the reading of God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. 
I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy for me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord! As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, do not delay, oh my God. This is the word of the Lord. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but this word, the word of the Lord, will stand forever. Now, the title of Psalm 40 indicates that it is a psalm of David. In other words, David is the author of this psalm. And the precise circumstances of this psalm are not specified in it, but this ambiguity enables us to more readily identify our own trials with this psalm. Look at verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The poetic imagery of the opening of Psalm 40 makes it immediately relatable. We know what it's like to be stuck in a pit, figuratively speaking. We can relate to that sense of hopelessness that the Mari Bog invokes. Perhaps it's a pit that we ourselves have dug. Maybe we have dug this pit through bad choices, through poor decisions, through foolish actions. Perhaps the miry bog that is pulling us down with a force that seems inescapable is our own sin. Our own sin that entangles and strangles. Or perhaps the pit and the miry bog have nothing to do with sin, but they have to do with the circumstances that overwhelm us, the trials that we are enduring, the anxiety that is brought on upon us because of a medical diagnosis, the heartache that we feel because of a broken relationship, the stress that comes with financial trouble. Perhaps you feel like you're in the pit right now, and you are waiting for the Lord to deliver you. That actually describes David's circumstances as he writes Psalm 40. You see, many psalms, most psalms, begin by stating a difficulty, a difficulty that is then resolved by the end of the psalm. But Psalm 40 essentially does the opposite of that. David begins the psalm by praising God for his past acts of deliverance, but then ends the psalm recognizing 
his present need. And he pleads for the Lord to rescue him without delay. Look at verse 17, the end of of Psalm 40. As for me, I am poor and needy, writes David. And he ends with, do not delay, O my God. David finds himself in the pit of destruction. He finds himself in the miry bog, but lest he allow himself to despair, David recalls God's goodness. David recalls God's faithfulness toward him. He remembers God's record of benevolence. In other words, in his present state of anguish, he lifts his gaze to a hopeful future by remembering God's past acts of deliverance. Again, in his present state of anguish, the crisis that he is facing, he lifts his gaze to a hopeful future by remembering God's past acts of deliverance. That's a good pattern for us when we find ourselves in the pit. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. And I want you to note how David invokes God's past acts of deliverance. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Dear Christian, whatever burden may be afflicting you today, you must remember that the God who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light is the same yesterday and today and always. You must remember that he does not change. You must remember that his loyalty does not waver. You must remember that his strength does not fail. You must remember that he finishes what he starts. That the one who drew you out of the pit and set your feet upon the rock will not leave you nor forsake you. In verse 3, David writes that as he sings praises to God, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. By proclaiming the excellencies of God, David is inviting you to remember God's mercy and to trust in him. Maybe again, or maybe for the first time. To trust him. If you're a Christian, he's inviting you to look back at God's merciful dealings with you and to marvel that while you were dead in your sin, God made you alive together with Christ. And he's inviting you to trust in him and to trust in his gracious provision for you. What an encouragement that is to God's people when, when one remembers the mercies of God and he proclaims them. Because you see, gospel proclamation is an act of love for your neighbor. Look at verse 4 again. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Perhaps you hear echoes here of Psalm 1, which Axel preached last week. The beginning of Psalm 1 and verse 4 here, are, they, they give us the same message, just using different words. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, 
on his law, he meditates day and night. But you see, instead of trusting the Lord and relying on his word, how often do we trust in proud men and in proud women, in those who have worldly success, but who may be, in fact, godless? Think of the celebrities that we idolize, the role models that we imitate, the influencers that we follow, the political leaders that we admire, and the intellectuals that we most respect. Young people, I mean, think of the YouTubers that you give your countless hours to, to see what they're doing, to see what, what adventure they're going on. Before setting them on pedestals, do we ever stop and think whether they believe in God? I mean, do these people reject Christ? Do they reject the one who shed his blood for you? Do they deny the truth and authority of Scripture, of this word that is our very life? Do they ridicule and persecute God's people, the apple of his eye? Do they actively oppose the kingdom of God? Do we even consider these things before so freely offering our allegiance and our devotion and our time and our money? You see, the blind must not lead the blind. We ought to hear David's admonition here and be very careful that we are not following after lies. Are these are these people that we follow, are they, are they joyous, well-adjusted people whose character and integrity is adorned by the fruit of the Spirit? Should we prize them or should we pity them? Should we praise them or should we pray for them? You see, the Bible tells us time and again that the blessed man, literally in Hebrew, the happy man, the man who, who has found fulfillment and contentment, that that man is the one who trusts in the Lord, who relies on his word. That's the blessed man. That's the happy man. Do you as a Christian need to recalibrate your priorities and rethink your goals? Look at verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Remember, again, as David writes this, he is in the pit. I mean, we read verse 17. I am poor and needy, he said. But as he recalls God's wondrous deeds, he says, none can compare with you. Your blessing toward me, your blessings towards me are so many, they're so numerous that they are more than can be told. That, he says that in the pit. And that's the essence of blessedness and contentment and joy. Remembering that God has changed you and has saved you. You see, circumstances cannot touch the blessed man and the blessed woman of God. Even when the circumstances are painful because they can't change the reality of what God has already done. They can't change the promise that God has already made and that he's sure to fulfill. 
It's good to consider God's wondrous deeds toward us. That encourages us as we find ourselves in the pit. But it's also good to tell others about God's faithfulness, that they might put their trust in God. Now, conversely, when we trust in the proud, when we go astray after lies, we end up living hollow lives that can only end in disappointment and in depression and in despair. That's their natural end. No matter how much money we accumulate, no matter how many awards we win, no matter how many followers we have. But happy is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Even in the pit, David is compelled to proclaim God's marvelous works. He writes about God's marvelous works in verse 5, but also he repeats them in verses 9 and 10, saying, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Do you remember when you first understood the gospel? Do you remember that moment or do you remember that day when you first realized that you did not have to earn salvation? That you did not have to earn God's love? That eternal life is a gift from God because of the great love with which he loved you. That your sins are forgiven because God's own son paid the penalty of your sin in full. Do you remember that day when you understood this for the first time? The joy of that moment was impossible to contain, wasn't it? And you had to share the good news with others, even to the point of being annoying. Some of you are still annoying, which is good. But it's easy, it's easy to forget God's goodness. It's easy to take God's mercy for granted, isn't it? So we do forget. We forget that love that we had at first. And we stop proclaiming the excellencies of God. Again, David says in verse 10, I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. That word translated there as faithfulness in Hebrew literally is truth. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your truth from the great congregation, David is saying. And I point this out because there has never been a time when proclaiming God's truth has been more important. I mean, it's always time to proclaim God's truth. Certainly, it's that time right now. There are very powerful interests committed to silencing God's truth. There's money, millions and billions being poured into the silencing of God's truth. So that even the most basic and obvious truths are not merely being called into question. They are being denied without debate. And this is causing great confusion and is disrupting every facet of life because society and even our children are being driven astray. Following after lie, 
after lie after lie. But we must be people who boldly proclaim the truth, who bring light into darkness, who with gentleness and respect are able to articulate the reason for the hope that dwells within us. That's what we're supposed to be. In fact, we must not only be people who are able to proclaim the truth, we ought to be people that desire to proclaim the truth. In fact, we ought to be people who can't help but proclaim the truth. Oh, that we would say like the Apostle Paul, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You see, we are no longer under the dominion of the father of lies. So we're not to partake in those lies. We are to call them out. We don't belong to the father of lies anymore. We belong to the one who is truth. So notice then that the beginning of Psalm 40, verses 1 to 4, is about God's past deliverance. And then the end of Psalm 40, verses 11 to 17, really, are about God's future deliverance. So you have deliverance both at the beginning and at the end of Psalm 40. That's the theme. That's the theme of the bookends of the psalm. Deliverance. But then if you move one layer in from each side, the second part of the psalm, verse 5, and the second to last part of the psalm, verses 9 and 10, they also share a theme, and that's about proclaiming God's redemptive works. So you have deliverance at the outside, and then one layer in, proclamation. This thematic correspondence between the opposite parts of the psalm are um, characteristic of Jewish poetry. Okay, this is called a chiastic structure because like the letter chi, the Greek letter chi, which, which looks like the English X, it, it shows that all the parts point to the center and that the center of the chi, that's the meaning of the poem. In this case, that's the meaning of the psalm, the center of it, the heart of it. Every part is pointing in towards that. Deliverance, proclamation. And this brings us to the heart of Psalm 40, which is verses 6 to 8. And as we shall see, especially verse 7. Especially verse 7. Look at verses 6 to 8. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, David here may have in mind the incident described in 1 Samuel 15, where Saul disobeyed the Lord and tried to appease him by offering sacrifices. And so the prophet Samuel went to him, and in 1 Samuel 15, 22, he tells him, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. David has not forgotten that disobedience costs Saul his crown. So again in verse 6 he writes, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Now, in antiquity, when someone was not able to pay their debt, they would sometimes become a slave 
to the person that they were indebted to. And the law of Moses provided that a Hebrew man could remain a slave for six years before being released on the seventh year. But if the master was good and the slave desired to remain in the service of this master for the rest of his life even, he would make this known and then the master would, would perforate one of the ears of the slave and that would indicate that he belonged to him. Perhaps David has this in mind when he writes, you have given me an open ear, indicating his unfailing devotion to God, that he wants to serve him all of his days. However, the Hebrew literally reads, you have dug my ears, in plural, you have dug my ears. So a better interpretation is that David is acknowledging that God has molded his ears, that God has shaped his ears, that he has given him ears to hear, so to speak. That he has given him a mind and a heart to understand his law and to obey it. That he has called him, that he has called him and he has given him ears to hear God's voice. This is why in verse 8, David goes on to write, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So there are three things that I want you to notice from these verses. First of all, sacrifices or offerings to God are of no value, of no value, if they don't flow from a heart that is wholly committed to God. You see, without our hearts, our offerings are merely attempts to appease God or to bribe Him. And that's the epitome of vanity and disgrace. We can't deceive God. And what God desires from us is obedience. Secondly, we are incapable of obeying God if He does not first take hold of our hearts. We cannot do it. He has to give us ears to hear His voice. He has to open our ears. He has to mold them. He has to shape them. He has to write His law in our hearts that we might delight in His law. Our obedience is the appropriate and inevitable response to His gracious initiative. It's His initiative. And then we respond accordingly. This is why Jesus affirms in John 6, 44, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And third, notice again that the chiastic structure, that structure where everything is pointing towards the center, continues to develop here. The outer layer was deliverance. The next layer was about proclamation, the need to proclaim God's redemptive works. And now in verses 6 to 8, the theme of obedience to God's law is, is before us. At the heart of this psalm lies the lesson that God delights in obedience, not in sacrifice. And furthermore, that the man of God also delights in obeying God. You see, God wants our hearts. 
Not only this, God demands our hearts. God demands our complete devotion to him. The problem, of course, is that none of us can give him that. None of us can give him that. Not even David, a man after God's own heart, yet capable of horrific sin. What a predicament this is. We find ourselves in a pit with our feet stuck in the miry bog. And what's needed to get out? Perfect obedience. But perfect obedience is precisely the very thing that we are incapable of offering. What then shall we do? Deliverance, proclamation, obedience, everything pointing now to the very center, to the heart of Psalm 40, which is verse 7. The verse that has no counterpart and no parallel in this psalm. The verse that is, again, the very heart of it. It says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. At the heart of Psalm 40, we find that David is no longer the speaker. Messiah is the speaker. Christ is the speaker. And at the very moment when we are stuck in the miry bog, in the depths of the pit of destruction, with perfect obedience being the ransom price to get out, the price that must be paid and the price that we cannot pay, it is Christ who says, Behold, I have come. You see, no one else comes into the world. David didn't come into the world. David is of the world, like you and me. We're born into the world. We don't come into the world. We, we're born in it. We're of it. We have no previous existence outside of our birth. But Christ, as the eternal pre-existing Son of God, does in fact have an existence that is before and outside the world. He made the world and he sustains it by the word of his power. John tells us that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus leaves the glory of the invisible heavens and comes into the miry bog of our fallen and sinful world. He dives into the pit with us. Again, look at verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. The scroll of the book is a reference to the Torah or to the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the first five books of our Bible. But you see, the first five books of the Bible have no specific reference to David but they contain countless references to Christ. He's the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. He's the ark that preserves humanity from the waters of judgment. He's the seed of Abraham that blesses all the nations. He's the angel of the Lord who defends God's people. He's Jacob's ladder that connects God and man. He's the Passover lamb that protects us from judgment. 
He is the manna from heaven that sustains God's people. He's the rock in the wilderness that quenches Israel's thirst. He's the bronze serpent that is lifted up and that heals those who turn to it. He's the prophet who is greater than Moses. In fact, in John 5.46, Jesus tells his audience, for if you believed in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. So this psalm, with its chiastic structure, allows us to be face-to-face with the one who's our deliverer. The one who proclaims the redemption and the kingdom of God. The one who obeys the law perfectly. This whole psalm points to Jesus. In our moment of need, he says, Behold, I have come. So we find that he is the speaker in verse 7. Mercifully, we find that he is the speaker in verse 7, but not just that, he is the speaker during the entire psalm. In verse 1, he is the one who patiently waits for the Lord. He's the one who endures the mocking and the insults and the beatings and the shame and the agony of the cross. In verse 2, he's the one who enters into the pit of destruction and into the miry bog to rescue us, that we might be firmly planted on the rock. In verse 3, he so identifies with us that he refers to God as our God, proving that he is our older brother. In verse 4, he's the one who never honors dishonorable men. In verse 5 and in verses 9 and 10, he's the one who proclaims God's wondrous deeds. One who, even as a child, taught the scriptures with uncommon wisdom and insight at the temple. And as an adult, proclaimed God's truth with such authority that those in his hearing declared, never did a man speak like this. In verses 11 and 13, he's the one who prayed for God's mercy and deliverance, even as his sweat turned to blood. Not asking to avoid God's wrath, but pleading for strength to endure it in our stead. In verse 12, he's the one who, though without sin, so identifies with our sin, so owns our sin, so takes his sin upon himself that he speaks as if it were his, proving that for our sake he indeed became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Though he knew no sin, he became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In verses 14 and 15, he's the one who is mocked on the cross even as he defeats death by his death and by his resurrection brings unending shame to the powers of darkness. In verse 16, he's the one who turns our mourning into dancing, clothing us with gladness. In verse 17, he's the one that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. And of course, all of this comes to light because his divine identity is especially revealed to us in verses 6 through 8. Verses that the author of Hebrews explicitly attributes to Christ, leaving no room for doubt as to their meaning. The book of Hebrews, which is a sermon, essentially it's a sermon preached under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, preaches the meaning of this text. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 7. Consequently, 
when Christ came into the world, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He's quoting Psalm 40 here. And notice that when he quotes Psalm 40, the author of Hebrews, instead of writing, you have given me an open ear, he says, a body you have prepared for me. He's quoting, he's using the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Bible. The third century BC Greek translation of the old Bible called the Septuagint. And that's why he uses that expression. But it's an expression that means the same thing. It's a translation that highlights the whole and complete devotion of the incarnate Christ to do God's will. It's the same meaning. You have shaped my ears that I might hear your voice and obey you. You have molded my ears. You have written your law in my heart. You, a body, a body you have prepared for me that I might be devoted to you. In other words, every part of Jesus is committed to the rescue mission. Every part of Christ, he gives himself that you might be his. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. There are no sweeter words for those dwelling in the pit. No sweeter words. We saw that the only way out of the pit is perfect obedience. Behold, Christ has come and has perfectly kept the law. And the Father has accepted his son's sacrifice as our substitute. Listen, if you dwell in Christ, you shall not dwell in the shadows of that pit. You shall not dwell in the shadow of the pit if you dwell in Jesus Christ. You can trust that. In our six-year-old's bedroom, there's a plug-in light which turns on when the room is dark and turns off when the room is lit. In other words, it turns off automatically in the presence of light. It has that sensor. The reason there is no need for a temple in Jerusalem anymore is that the light of the world has come into the world. The sacrifices that pointed God's people towards a path of reconciliation, towards a way that would take you out of the miry bog, those, those things aren't needed anymore. Because Christ has come to fulfill the law's demands and to rescue his people. So I leave you with a conclusion that the author of Hebrews reaches concerning the heart of Psalm 40 as he preaches his sermon. This is what he says. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then he said, Behold, I have come. Oh, what sweet words for sinners in the pit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how sweet it is to know that Christ has come. That all those promises 
that for centuries and millennia pointed forward to the day when you would send your provision, the provision of a Savior, the one who would stand in our place, the one who would take away our sin, the one who would fulfill the law perfectly, who would give you that perfect obedience which you rightly demand, that, you ha- that He has come. So that even if we find ourselves in a pit even today, we can look with hopeful expectation to what lies ahead for us because Christ has come. Father, how good that is. What good news that is. If there's those here, Father, who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, oh Lord, may today be the day that your Spirit moves powerfully in their hearts that they too may see that the shadow of the pit is no place for them, that the light of the world has come, that they need to turn to that light, that he will make them new, even as he has made us new. And Father, as we prepare to come to your table, may the provision, the full provision of Jesus Christ be especially clear to us. So help us to prepare now, to prepare our hearts for this sacrament. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.